Welcome to the Better Questions podcast. This is episode number six, and today we are talking about or asking the question, can Christians disagree? And uh, today I am really excited to say that we have a guest on the podcast. We have Titus Benton, and uh, Titus is the author of A Conversational Commentary and GRIP. He is the executive director of the 25 Group, which is a nonprofit organization raising money to help make less, least of these all around the world. He's a campus pastor for Ecclesia Church on the west side of Houston in Katy, Texas. Uh, and he's also a great friend and mentor to all three of us. I think I could safely say that he's a mentor to all three of us. Mm, I never said that about me. <laughs> well, he's at least a mentor to me. And uh, I am really happy to have him on the podcast. And we think he's the perfect person to have with us because he also has a master's degree in church history. And if we're talking about disagreement in the church and can Christians disagree, I think it uh, will be awesome to have his expertise on how disagreement has happened all throughout church history. Um, So without any further ado, this is episode number six. Can Christians disagree? Several years ago, in one of my first ministries, I encountered a church that had a hundred people leave the church over the doctrine of salvation, and specifically, if baptism was essential for salvation. And one side believed wholeheartedly that baptism was and is 100% essential for salvation. No ifs, ands, buts, exceptions, nothing. If you were not baptized, you uh, were not going to heaven. If you were killed in a car accident on the way to get baptized, you were not in heaven. And the other side saw that as um, salvation through works, because they saw baptism as a work that you would do. And they were saying that salvation comes by grace through faith. And as a result of that disagreement, a hundred people left a church. You're telling me a large group of people left a church over a <laughs> theological disagreement? Which, which group left? Which group had the hundred people? The hundred people that left was the group that believed that baptism was a work and that salvation came by grace through faith. So when we think of this question, um, I think that it brings to mind some other questions that just help frame it. And I think you can also think of it in terms of who's in and who's out, or why are there so many denominations or interpretations of scripture? And maybe even a uh, controversial question, but which one is quote unquote right? Um, And I think those are all compelling. And if I might add, I would even say I've been in plenty of circumstances where this is the legitimate question Like, is it okay for Christians to disagree, particularly publicly, because the argument I've often heard is, well, 
if Christians are disagreeing publicly, that's bad for our witness to the world. People outside are looking and seeing Christians fighting and say, well, we don't want any part of that. Well, the Protestant church has been making a bad example for a long time. Right. And uh, I think this is a great time uh, to introduce our guest, uh, Titus. We're really glad that you're with us. Good to be here, guys. And uh, I would just love to hear um, from you as we are setting up this question. Um, anything that comes to mind relevant to this question, uh, church history-wise, um, feel free to take it away. Yeah. I mean, I think Andrew just nailed it when he said, if uh, the concern is the church being a bad example, then we've been a bad example pretty much from the start. And you go all the way back to the book of Acts, and you see disagreements in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and then later kind of referencing the same argument in Galatians 2. You get out of the New Testament, and the church councils start, you know, almost immediately. Um, even the earliest traditions, when you talk about the western part of the empire and the eastern part of the empire, and what we might call Jewish Christianity or the Syriac tradition, you know, each of them sort of hitched their wagon to Peter in the West, Paul in the East, James in the Syriac church. So there's, there's disagreement there. Uh, from the very beginning, you've got seven early church councils that are settling huge arguments that are theological in nature. Then you've got the medieval councils, 11-ish, depending on how you count them where really the church shifts from asking questions about, hey, what are we supposed to believe to how are we supposed to function? And really the only break in the councils is a couple hundred years in the middle where the Great Schism happens. So there's division there. And that had been brewing for centuries with lesser schisms. The Phocian Schism comes to mind in one of my personal faves. Then you've got a schism in the papacy, you've got the Protestant Reformation, which in retrospect looks an awful lot like division, the fracturing into a bunch of denominations in Europe and then in America. So, you know, if Christians can't disagree, then in the history of the world, there's never been a Christian, because that's the one thing we do pretty well. That is a great point. Can I just exclamate it by saying that schism is one of my favorite words? That'd be a great Christian band. The Great Schism. <laughs> uh, I, I have a, a question for clarification for Titus. So with everything that you just described, some of those disagreements, I'm sure Christians would look back upon and say, that was not an awesome time in the church that we look back on fondly. Uh, that we would promote as a healthy way to disagree. But when you look at some of the more, I'll call it organized disagreements, such as the councils, could you describe a little bit how those were actually set up and kind of how that went down? Sure. Well, I wasn't at any of them and, you know, no two of them were probably exactly alike, but and I think it varies, too, when you start talking about the early church councils. You know, the first couple are going to look a lot different than the last couple in the Reformation period. So, but what's hard about those, I think it's a contemporary issue for us as well, is from the very beginning, you have a blending between religious 
authority figures and political authority figures. And sometimes those are the same. Sometimes they're really close and you can't tell who's who. I mean, you've got Constantine presiding over councils that decided huge theological uh, belief systems. You've got popes presiding over councils that are making huge statements about who the church is to be. And those figures weren't necessarily um, solely theologically trained leaders. They were political leaders that had complex motivations for what they were trying to do. And a lot of times those would come down to a vote. A lot of times those would come down to people leaving angry. Most of the time those ended with somebody being deposed or kicked out. And so it just goes back to that point of kind of the whole vibe of those councils is, hey, we disagree on something, let's talk about it. There's much discussion and there's still disagreement, which is why there are subsequent councils. So we still haven't got it all figured out. And I think that's why this is still a huge question in the church today, who's in and who's out. Well, if, uh, if I might add, part of the reason I asked that question, because I think this is so important for how this conversation can move forward. We're talking with the councils about something where there's big disagreement and they come together to argue, debate, and end up making some pretty huge decisions. And so when you look at today, how is what happened there similar to or different from maybe a group of elders arguing something behind closed doors versus a bunch of Christians debating something in front of everyone over social media? Because that that's where I hear this question come up a lot. Should Christians disagree? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are differences, right? Like the way we communicate, the way we communicate with each other, uh, the way we sort of rubber stamp what the church believes. Like our society now is much more decentralized than it was in the ages of the popes when you've got, you know, a pretty central civil government in Europe and then obviously with the church. So, you know, now anybody with a Twitter handle can chip into the conversation. And so, you know, I think that's where some critique comes up of like, hey, that person's just a blogger. They're not an expert or whatever. But again, I think that speaks to the same issue is like, well, well, who's in? Like who, who even gets to sit around the table to have the conversation? And I think what is a challenge that the church is facing these days is, you know, in the time of Constantine, it was just decided on like the bishops went and maybe there were representatives from, you know, emperors or different civil uh, governors. And now, you know, you've got this groundswell of voices and opinion, much of it very well informed, much of it very educated and thoughtful and uh, just well structured arguments and all this kind of stuff. And then you've got people who maybe are in the seats of power in churches who are questioning the rights of those other people to even say anything. And then you've got the question of, well, what is a blogger in Minnesota? Why do they get to have authority over my congregation in Louisiana? But the reality is the way we get our theological education, the way we have our theological conversations, the way we debate different 
ideas, be they theological or social or political or whatever, like those don't just happen within the four walls of a church or within the great hall of a council. They're happening online. They're happening all over the place. So you've got people who have the authority and the power in the classical traditional sense, whose authority and power structure is being challenged by the very way that we communicate and have these conversations. And I don't think we've figured out how to balance all that out just yet. Uh, I think it's safe to say that not every Christian is just, you know, completely caught up on their church history, you know, flipping through their textbooks on the councils of Nicaea and, you know, Constantine. If you could name me one other council, Andrew, uh, <laughs> I might give you a dollar. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's exactly your point. <laughs> All my credibility has just flown out the window. Which I guess it wasn't the last episodes. I don't know. But anyway, back to my train of thought. It, it seems to me that a lot of Christians aren't caught up on their church history. Obviously, it, it's not a it, it's a niche thing. It's not something everyone's just going to be super into. So Titus, let me ask you this. What's one thing you wish uh, people in the modern church today that you wish they would know about church history? Like, what is something surprising or something you just feel like of the history of disagreement and theological development in the church? What's the one thing you wish most modern churchgoers knew? I think you'll understand how this is uh, related. And I know your listeners are sharp enough to see the connection. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is that when you look at the history of the church, it is when the church has the most political power that it's at its worst. And I think that plays into every age, church history, every era, including our own. I think when the church has the least political power is when it is most like the New Testament church and probably the most unified um, because. As a practical matter, uh, their concern was um, spreading the gospel, staying alive. Um, they were poor. They were wanderers in many cases. They were disenfranchised. So they, they had to turn to each other for support. And so questions about where the Pope should live or um, should priests be able to marry or even what some might consider more important questions, such as how many natures does Jesus have? Um, those were questions they weren't concerned with as much. So I think that it's just important to look back on history and let it inform our present age, because I think we are inclined to repeat some pretty dramatic mistakes. Yeah. Titus, you recently uh, wrote a blog post that was around this topic. And um, in that blog post, you just made some very similar points about not repeating mistakes of history. And uh, it just, it caused me to think in relation to this question, like we even disagree as Christians on whether or not we can disagree. You see, I disagree about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And so, like, what do you think, if people are talking about can Christians disagree, what would you say would be, like, 
the main ways that people answer this question, the different ways people um, answer that question, and maybe what some of the motivations are behind that and what's at stake for them. Yeah, I think Chris raised a really great point a minute ago when he said that for a lot of people, the answer to that question is, well, we can disagree, but we just need to like disagree in-house. We shouldn't let anyone else see that because it makes the church look bad. And obviously the concern, the motivation there is the church looking good. And that's just not a concern I have. You know, I think that the church is the church and that's pretty messy. I think that um, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And I think people would rather be a part of a church that's authentic and humble and real uh, than they are with one that has this veneer of unity. But when it's just them in a room, they're all fussy at each other. I think that's kind of jacked up. There there are other motivations as well. Um, but I think that one is one that I would challenge. I mean, I personally have been told that to disagree with a leader out loud was being divisive. And I just couldn't really, I, I couldn't really balance that with my view of how the church is supposed to function. Well, and, and that's hard because that is a major motivator too, because when we start thinking about not only different denominations, but also cultural differences, churches all across the world in other countries, then pastoral authority becomes a big deal as well of like, is it okay to call out a leader in the church? Is it okay to disagree with them? Um, you know, which becomes difficult and your point becomes even more important that you said earlier of making the church look good because sometimes the church has looked the worst when it chooses to only work with disagreements in house. Um, many of the sexual abuse scandals uh, come to mind as a prime example of that. Right. And like, it just makes me think about the fact that um, people on each side will cite Jesus himself to kind of justify their behavior from the point of view that they see. Like if you take someone who has no authority and they're speaking out against authority, they'll say, well, Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus had no religious authority, yet he stood up to the religious leaders. They were the ones that he called out the most. But then people that have religious authority will say, well, except Jesus did have religious authority because he was the son of God. He was God himself. And so his authority based on the incarnation of God makes him have that higher authority above even the religious leaders. And so he did, he was able to speak. Um, and I just think that's, that's interesting that both sides even look to the same, the same source material for their argument. In that, in that tension though, I think I see maybe our biggest challenge, which is that both groups are trying to advocate for the fact that they have the right to say something or that they have the authority to be an expert. And I think what I hear in our modern dialogue that is a little troubling, and I know that I'm guilty of this as well, is just a lot of arrogance um, and a lack of humility and being able to listen. You know, I mean, we're all familiar with 
how fast a, a thread online can disintegrate into really gnarly stuff. And, you know, I have posted some pretty benign things that have sort of whirlpooled down into just a cesspool of divisive, mean, angry, all caps kind of nonsense. And I think there's just a lack of being willing to listen um, in the church today. And I think that causes our disagreements to escalate unnecessarily, particularly with people who are in seats of power, whether that's in a local church, as a staff or a lay leader, or in a big denomination, which we see stuff coming out of Southern Baptist Convention and historically in the Catholic Church, and really no denomination is untouched. Like there's just this desire to maintain their position and protect the brand of the organization more so than to have an honest conversation where they're willing to listen to those who are critiquing their behavior or their theology. I seem to notice a difference of different types of disagreements, right? So we've mentioned theological disagreements, whether that be baptism or, you know, name some other doctrine, right? But then there are disagreements of like something bad happened in the church. How do we handle it? Mm. And I think we need to acknowledge that difference that, you know, when we say disagreements, we could either be referring to a theological or a um, philosophical disagreement, or we could be referring to just like a, you know, like something went down and and two different people had two different reactions. And, you know, there's disagreements over like, was that morally right? Was that morally wrong? Instead of just disagreements over theoretical ideas. Right. And a lot of times the reaction becomes how do we best protect the institution Mm -hmm. and not how do we best reflect Christ? Yeah. I think it would be unwise if we treated disagreements over ideas in the same way we treated disagreements over like certain actions or wrongs or errors. You know what I mean? We don't want to paint them with the same brush. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction. And Um, I'd be curious to hear from you guys on this, but at least for me, those two distinctions bring up why I think this is not the most helpful question. And here's what they are. When we're talking about a theological difference. So Dan, you gave the example of people leaving the church over a disagreement between, um, the position of baptism in salvation. And I totally understand why that is a really, really important issue for people because you are talking about how and when people are saved. But when it comes to the question, can Christians disagree? It sounded like the answer there was no. If you don't agree with this, then leave. And that's why it's not a helpful question there because we're basically saying, if you can't agree on every issue, you're not welcome here and you don't belong here. And that causes a lot of harm. Right. And even if the line isn't, you have to leave this church, I feel like every church has a line, whether that's, you can right. stay, but you can't be an elder or you can stay, but you can't teach a class. 
You can stay, but you can't ever speak up about anything on social media. You can stay, but yeah. like, there's always a line. Well, and then the reason it's not a helpful question for me with the other distinction Andrew made. Um, for example, I've had uh, a lot of conversations with someone recently about the whole Bill Hybels issue. If you don't know all the information there, you can Google it. You can easily find out. But the the discussions were based around, well, this has become such a public thing. These people calling him out in public and it just makes the church look really bad. They should deal with this in private, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason to me, that's a bad question of should Christians disagree like this is because we get so caught up in that question that it prevents us and distracts us from dealing with the issue at hand. In this case, taking care of the victims, like removing someone from leadership, setting up boundaries so this doesn't continue to happen, that all gets pushed aside because we're just fighting about whether or not it's okay to fight. I think I would add to that, that, um, and not without, I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but having been a part of a pretty similar scenario in the past, you know, saying something like, well, you should be dealing with this privately, not publicly, makes a lot of assumptions. For example, what if it was dealt with privately first and it wasn't handled well? Is it wrong then to make it a public facing discussion? I think there's a lot of interesting questions in that. It just seems to me that in the modern American church in particular, there's a discomfort with challenging authority. And I know that God has given certain people authority in local churches and in some cases in denominations and so on. But it's not that that authority should remain untested. Um, I think that you see that all over the scriptures with people um, in the Old Testament. You have prophets who are speaking out against um, the kings of Israel who in that government set up were religious leaders. In the New Testament, you have people challenging one another in public. I just don't think that's something that's out of bounds. I think we need to be careful how we execute that kind of confrontation. I think it should go a certain way and maintain a certain tone. But if that's out of bounds, if that's not allowed, then it's like, you're not going to have to tell me I don't belong. I don't want to belong to an organization like that, where if you're at the top, you're untouchable. Yeah. And I think, I think that disagreeing specifically with people in authority and do we have the right to speak up or speak out is a very important facet of this question. I'd like, if I can, to even bring up another facet, which is not necessarily speaking out or disagreeing with people in authority in the church, but just between peers and and fellow brothers um, and sisters. Like, there is a very common, if you've been in church, you know, any length of time, you might have heard this illustration of, well, there are some things that are open-handed, which means we hold them loosely, and you can kind of believe what you want to believe about those things. But there are some things that are close-handed, where we have to hold on tightly to these doctrines because they're the foundation of our faith, right? 
And I think my question is like, what if you encounter a brother in Christ that disagrees with you on what those open-handed things are? What if you encounter a brother or sister in Christ that disagrees with you on what those close-handed things should be? Can we disagree on what things are even open and close-handed? Like, what do we do when we can't even find that common ground as, as peers? Well, you, you shouldn't even phrase it as what if, because it's going to happen. You know, like, it's just going to happen. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm being idealistic, but what if instead you, of... You nine on the Enneagram, <laughs> you peacemaker. Maybe I'm being idealistic as a nine, but what if um, instead of challenging each other when we come up with those things, instead of all caps writing on Facebook and we're clinging so tightly to our closed-fisted things, if someone, a brother or sister in Christ, disagrees on even what is closed-fisted, couldn't we just start asking questions Mm -hmm. and listening to their point of view? And why what you're bringing up now is so important too is because for so many Christians who I've seen answer the question, no, in the circumstances you described on the closed-fisted issues, we cannot disagree, which I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying in cases where I've seen people who answer the question, no, then what the next response is, is, well, that means everything that person has said, even things they've said that I do agree with, we have to throw it all out now because there's one issue that's important that we disagree on. And we can't disagree. So that means we cannot agree on anything. Well, like, let's put it this way. What if, what if you're in a situation where it's so clear to you that theologically you are right in this disagreement, which, I mean, when does that ever happen, right? <laughs> so, okay, so let's just assume you are empirically right. An angel comes down and just like tells you, yeah, yeah, man, you were right. You pwned that noob. Okay. Great. What what does that really do? At the end of the day, you were right. How does that make the relationship better? How does that serve the gospel better? How does that... By you proclaiming your rightness and you insisting upon it and thus refusing to then work with someone. Okay, yeah, you were right, but what else do you have? Right. Um, Rob Bell, whatever you think about him uh, personally had a great point I heard him make on a YouTube video, which was around the time when his book Love Wins came out, and it caused such a controversy, revealing some of his views on the afterlife and specifically hell, even though that wasn't 100% what that book was even about. Um, He very, very, in a heartfelt way, was asking an interviewer who was just really coming down on him about the doctrine thing saying like, yeah, but aren't we still brothers? Couldn't we still take communion together? Like, don't you see that we're still very much aligned in other doctrines? Like almost reading between the lines, he was like a hurt friend saying like, wait, we can't be friends anymore just because of this thing that I've learned and, and have come to through study and, and have made a decision about and now believe mm-hmm. something different and we disagree. Um, and that just really spoke to me. Like, 
it it hurt my heart. You know, it made me want to give Rob Bell a hug. It's like, but again, don't I'm say a nine. things like that. We're not going to get any <laughs> listeners. I'm a nine on the once, once you but... say you want to hug Rob Bell, we can kiss the listeners goodbye. <laughs> Trying to throw this podcast down a flaming chute. So I think we've stumbled on a pretty huge um, social issue as well, and I think the church is being impacted by this dynamic. Um, a word you hear a lot these days is othering. And it's this idea that if someone's not like us, if they don't live where we live, look like we look, espouse the same values as we espouse, they're the other. And because we live in a post 9-11 world where terrorism's around every corner, like we just have the propensity to value our safety at such a high level that we want to keep others away. I think a lot of our political discourse in the country is centered around this idea of othering. And I don't mean just to take cheap shots at our current president. I think every political campaign uh, pits one side as the other and a boogeyman to be scared of. And I think that that, when it comes to the church, it leads us to a place where we have been trained as human beings to avoid people who don't believe exactly what we believe. And we preach a good game when it comes to inclusivity um, or being open-hearted to people who aren't like us. But often, I mean, even if you look at modern American missions, we go somewhere else and we rough it for a week and we pat ourselves on the back and we think that we've done something really great. But if you were to if you were to ask most American Christians if they were willing to, for example, let a Muslim Syrian refugee live in their home, my guess is most would say no. There's just this tendency that we have to avoid that which is different from us. And I think we're wise to look at the broader social tone right now and recognize that it's kind of seeped into our churches, into the way we think, into the way we argue. And we talk about open and closed fist, and I think that's an important conversation to have. But I think we also have to talk about the stiff arm that most Christians put up in an attempt to keep away people who are a threat, not to their lives or their physical safety, but to the way they think and the values that they hold. I wish you were literally holding that microphone right now, Titus, because I'd want you to drop it. Um, I'd like for a second, though, I think both to some things that Titus and Dan just said, play devil's advocate, um, especially to describe a tension that I feel with this. I think that there are Christians and I've come in contact with them that have a major problem with anyone who is different than them. That is true. But the question we're talking about today is, can Christians disagree? And the reason I think that's important is because I actually see a lot of Christians do really well with people who disagree with them that are not Christians. Like I have seen Christians do really well when an atheist walks into the church building and says, hey, I'm just here checking this out. I don't believe any of this, but I just kind of want to see what it's about. Or talking to uh, um, a Muslim and saying, man, I'd really love to to get coffee 
with you and just start a conversation. I've actually seen a lot of Christians do that really well. Yeah, but is, isn't that because it's like the whole dating thing? You, you don't argue a lot with the girl you're taking out on dates, but once you get into a relationship with her and potentially marry her, then it's like, well, you're not trying to impress her anymore. I think that might because might be because of an ulterior motive of let me get you in and just be super nice. That, that, that might be true. Um, but where I struggle, especially in this tension is, is when it comes to Dan, you gave the example of Rob Bell. One side of me wants to say, man, Christians should be able to disagree like what you were just advocating for, where you said, can't we still be brothers? Can we still take communion together? But also part of me feels like if you if you see someone that you believe is teaching some something that's really harmful to others. For example, let, let's say that there was an American preacher that was going around preaching that we, we should still be able to have African Americans as slaves. I, I feel like we would be having a different conversation right now than, well, can we still call that guy brother? And can we still have communion with him? And, and I, I think that is how many Christians feel towards some of these things that they would deem as big theological differences of, well, you are, you are hypothetically teaching something that is going to cause others to go to hell. And so, yeah, we should be calling you out and distancing ourselves from you. And where I really struggle is when I look at Jesus, I see stories where (laughs) there were people that others would have really distanced themselves from and treated poorly that he, he did the exact opposite to and taught love your enemy. But then I also see the way that Jesus talked to some of these religious leaders that he felt like were teaching some harmful things. And that looks really different. And this is where I struggle of what should this look like when we disagree with other Christians. So I, I mean, I think number one, I think Chris is right. And anytime you get into a discussion like this, you run the risk of sounding just super accusatory and like, oh, we're all terrible and we don't know anything. Like, there's a lot of really good stuff going on. So I totally agree. I think secondly, what what he just said about Jesus and his questioning of, um religious authority and and challenging that it it brings me back to the question you asked earlier dan about what's closed-fisted and what's open-fisted you know what is something that legitimately might be harming someone to the point of um not not just like their eternal salvation but just revealing to them maybe a side of the church that will uh, make them very cynical or harm them in some way. And I, I do think we need to call those things out. But at some point, we have to decide, 
what's the close-fisted stuff. And I think one of the issues we face these days is we all have different definitions of what those are. And I think we have to lean a little bit on church history to ask the question, hey, what makes someone a Christian and what have been the things that we've disagreed upon over the centuries that aren't really a matter of faith, they're just a matter of tradition. And I guess the last thing I would say on that is, it is okay to disagree about things. Like we've turned disagreeing um, about um, whether or not women can preach into a closed-fisted thing. And I just think you can read the scriptures and in a way that is genuine and faithful to the scriptures um, come down on different sides of various theological uh, subjects. And we've turned a lot of those into close-fisted things, and I just don't think they were ever meant to be so. Gosh, those are such great points you guys have made. What what about me? I said you guys. I was referring to all of you. Um, No, it's really great. And what it makes me think of is like, we're talking about this tension. And I was sitting here trying to figure out, man, where is the line? Because, um, you know, just like you described, that tension is just so... Uh, palpable. It's so hard to get around. And then where my brain kind of went to is uh, that Jesus addressed this, uh, maybe not directly, but he talked about um, if you go into a town and you're not received, then you leave the town and you just kind of wipe, wipe the dust of the town off your feet. And maybe it's one of those things of like, if you can't get a word in, and you can't associate, if you feel like in your conscience, you can't associate with that teaching. Instead of writing an all caps rant on their Facebook page about how wrong they are, take the, the example you gave, Chris, about the person preaching pro-slavery. Obviously, that's awful. And, but what if instead of affirming them and saying we can still be brothers, and instead of, you know, picketing their events with things like God hates you or writing an all caps rant on Facebook against them. What if we simply just didn't engage at all and just metaphorically left the town and wiped the dust off our feet? And a lot of that is deciding which hill do you want to die on? And I feel like a lot of Christians today, myself included, want to die on every hill, want to die on every argument, throw it all in on every little disagreement whether it be Calvinism, Armenianism, baptism, hell, Pop-Tarts flavoring, I don't know, right? And I feel like there is a tension between, okay, there, here are disagreements that are more like ideological, and really if we part ways, nothing bad's going to happen. Then there are disagreements where I really feel like if this person continues to speak, they're going to hurt people like someone who's pro-slavery, And so I think there is a use of discernment where you have to say, okay, some hills I'm not going to die on, and maybe this one I am. But I think the key is even on a hill you are going to die on, you take Jesus's example, and when you die on the hill, you're dying for them. Mm. You know what I mean? You're You're not dying in a, for my own victory, it's I'm dying on this hill for them, but also for you, right? Man, that's good. 
Well, I think I can segue us into um, into some better questions if that's okay. Unless we want to. Yeah. Okay. Do it. All right. Let me see if this works. It's time for the better question part of the show. Boom, boom, boom. So here's the issue I'm seeing with this. In this very discussion, the four of us have disagreed with each other on different things. And so the problem is if when the reason this is not a great question is because first of all, it's a yes or no question. Can Christians disagree? So if the answer is no, well then that means when we disagree, we say, okay, see you, you're out of here. You don't belong here. I don't interact with you anymore. So then how, how can we ever, even if we think someone is detrimentally wrong, well, then by all means, wouldn't we even more want to keep interacting with them so that we can help them move forward? But if we just say we can't disagree, so now as soon as we're not on the same page, we split apart, that's not helpful. And if the answer is yes, Christians can disagree, well, that just shows that that's not a great question because there's still a, well, then what after that? So either way, we've got to come up with some better questions. Certainly. I, I think any better question should assume the fact that there will be disagreement. True. Like, it's just a reality. Disagreement's going to happen. And I think if you ask, can we disagree, there's almost this hope for, well, maybe maybe disagreement can never happen, and maybe we'll just never have to worry about it. Uh, Titus, as our guest, I would love to see if you have any thoughts. Uh, you can have first dibs at a better question. And if you don't, then I just put you on the spot and was awful to you as our guest. So I apologize. I'm ready. I don't know if this is the best question, but I think the first one never is a better question. (laughs) That's why we, that's why we call it the better questions because we're not looking for the best, just better. I, I think a better question is why do we get so frantic and territorial and protective why do we hyperventilate when we disagree i just don't understand that as a people who are supposed to be willing to die for each other as you said earlier andrew as a people who are supposed to be following christ's example like why do we feel like our authority is so challenged why are we so insecure why is it that we are so bothered by disagreement I, that is that is a question i would love uh to have an answer to um another question i was thinking about and maybe this isn't the right wording maybe you guys can help me better word it would be something along the lines of what is worth disagreeing on we've talked about uh, open-handed issues versus closed-fisted issues. And I think that those are conversations worth having because a lot of times we we get into disagreements over things that really don't matter. I think that's one um, one question that can really be richly informed by church history. I think when you look at the first seven councils, what you see are conversations about who Jesus is, um, 
what it means to be Christian is largely informed by who we believe the person of Jesus was and what we believe his work accomplished. And by probably the Council of Chalcedon, uh, we had what we know now as the creeds and the Chalcedonian definition of the faith. And you get beyond that council, maybe maybe the sixth council, I forget which one it was. I think it was the third council. The third, the third council in Constantinople, they're starting to argue about, you know, the perpetual virginity of Mary and probably some issues that, in my mind, are not um, as close-fisted. But when you're talking about being a Christian, you're talking about who is Jesus and what did he do? How do we relate to him? And the answer to those questions, to me, were settled within the first four or five centuries of the church, and they really haven't changed since. Um, everything that follows, you know, in the latter early church councils and all the medieval councils, um, and even in these conversations that often get people all in a tizzy online today, these are peripheral issues. I'm not saying they're unimportant issues. I'm just saying they're not closed-fisted issues. One question in this regard that I often ask people and it's interesting to see their responses is what is the bare minimum someone has to believe in order to be saved? And in my opinion, if you can define that, then anything that is not that Christians should be able to agree to disagree on and still exist in community fine even while disagreeing. Unless, of course, that person thinks that slavery is okay. Well, here's the challenging thing. I think that, um, again, the perspective of church history is helpful. Because if you feel like polygamy means that you can't go to heaven, if you practice polygamy, you can't go to heaven, then most of our Old Testament heroes are out. If you believe, for example, that if you have a slave or you're involved in human trafficking, that you can't go to heaven, then a lot of our New Testament heroes are out. I think there are these lines we draw based on what I think are correct conclusions that we hold today. Um, You know, I do not think polygamy is okay. I do not think slavery is okay. I do not think human trafficking is okay. Or maybe even to be a to give a less controversial example, although in my circles growing up, this would have been equally controversial. If you believe that you have to be immersed entirely in water to be saved, to go back to the example you used at the top, then there are a lot of people in the Middle Ages that are our Christian heroes that will rot in hell, if you believe in hell. So there's lots of things that in our modern time we kind of get stuck in and convinced of and in so doing we eliminate most of the people we quote on a regular basis to support the rest of our theology and so i just think that's a little bit sketchy and a little bit myopic and probably a little bit arrogant for us to assume those things based on what we know now i'm so glad you said that um Man, I feel like this whole podcast, I'm just having fun listening to you guys like just make mic drop point after mic drop point. Um, but what you just said, like, 
really brought to mind some times where I've actually like researched or read some of the full views of some of the like church heroes, not just in scripture, but like throughout the history of the church, St. Augustine or Origen or Martin Luther or even C.S. Lewis. And like you start studying about these people's lives and some of the full, not famous parts of their work. And you start to see that some of them believed some things about doctrines we take for granted that if they said some of these things from a pulpit today, they'd be run out of town by the evangelical church. And that is really, really interesting. I just encourage everybody to to research um, some of the views of our church fathers and try to reconcile how can I quote St. Augustine in one breath about this when now I know he believed X. Yeah, yeah. Martin Luther drank a lot of beer, talked out loud to the devil, hated Jews, and wouldn't work with people that didn't believe exactly what he believed. And we celebrate him. Ulrich Zwingli uh, felt that. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, that's a great example. So I think, you know, that just speaks to that point. And guess what? We also are wildly inconsistent with our views. And 500 years from now, people are going to look back at us and go, they kept talking about justice and being anti-human trafficking and like thinking that the poor deserve blah, blah, blah. And homeboy had a pool in his backyard and had two cars and had three places where he'd go to the bathroom inside of his house. He didn't believe what he said he believed. Like everyone is inconsistent. Everyone. And so it's just another level of hubris for us to like point out that everyone else is inconsistent and we're the only ones that are consistent. By the way, uh, I'm at Titus's house right now and he was just describing himself. (laughs) Chris just had to make that obvious. I think an additional question that I would throw in the mix is how should we disagree? And, you know, obviously there are some scriptural precedents for disagreement. There are also passages of scripture where Jesus obviously states what we're to do when we sin against each other. I don't know that that can always be applied to disagreement between sisters and brothers, but I think there's some practical um, advice there. So how do we disagree is a question that I don't think we've quite answered. That was going to be my first suggestion for a better question as well is to just assume disagreement is going to happen, but to ask, how do we disagree well? And I think that I I really would love to explore that topic, but that would require part two of this episode. Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't really have a better question to contribute. I'm not pulling my weight on this episode because I, once I heard how do we disagree well? My brain just went, that sounds like it. Yeah. I actually was thinking, how should we disagree? So I'm on the same wavelength. I'm down for that one. Because what I like about it is, one, it's a how question, so it calls us to action. It's about what we're doing. It It forces us to think about how we're disagreeing, how we're treating the other person, um, to think about our motives, and then how to approach the disagreement with wisdom and discernment. Um, I also like whenever our questions settle 
onto something that even a non-believer or a person of other faith could ask. Um, because disagreeing is not only a Christian problem. <laughs> and uh, so I think anybody, especially in the state of our nation and the state of our world, I think people should be asking that question. How do we disagree well? Well, Titus, it has been a sincere honor and pleasure having you on the podcast. This has been amazing. And uh, I just wanted to give you a chance um, to just share with people how they can find you on social media or how they can interact with your work. So where can people find uh, your blogs or your books um, or interact with you online? That's the second time you referenced my books, and it kind of makes me sound like a big fancy author, and I'm just not. But uh, my self-published works are on Amazon, and you can find them if you're interested. I blog at TitusLive.com. That's my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle as well. I have a terrible Instagram. I have a decent Twitter, I think. I think it's decent. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, of course. Uh, but the blog is probably the best place to engage with anything that remotely approaches this kind of discussion. If you just if you just like eating popcorn and watching arguments, my Facebook is a pretty good spot. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Titus. This has been awesome. You've been listening to the Better Questions podcast. As always, uh, please like or share our posts on Facebook and social media. Please, uh, if you like our podcast, consider rating us and subscribing on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. So in addition to being able to be on this podcast, which is a great joy, uh, I always listen. I love what you guys are doing. But what I wanted to say importantly is that by far, Chris's voice is the best on 1.5 or two times speed. But Dan on half speed sounds so drunk. <laughs> it is awesome. But Chris. Chris at 1.5 or 2 is <laughs> semi chipmunky and it is the best. I'm so glad other people the best. mess with the speed of podcast. I don't do that. I I do it. I do it a lot.